Welcome to Broadway's Backbone with Brad Bradley, a podcast dedicated to the men and women of the ensemble, the chorus of dancers, singers, and actors that are the foundation of every Broadway musical. These often unsung gypsies are the hardest working people on the boards and are, well, Broadway's backbone. Welcome to episode 79. My guest is David Dabin. David Dabin is a composer, dance arranger, conductor, and orchestrator. David is creating the dance music as dance arranger on the new musical adaptation of Beetlejuice. David was the dance arranger for the musical Disaster and provided additional orchestrations for Sondheim on Sondheim, Grammy nomination. He served as the music supervisor of The Christians at Playwrights Horizons on the events at the New York Theater Workshop and was the arranger on the world premiere of Sarah Rule's Stage Kiss, also at Playwrights Horizon. He was the conductor and created the additional dance arrangements for The Unsinkable Molly Brown, directed and choreographed by Kathleen Marshall. He also created the dance arrangements for the Broadway-bound musical The Nutty Professor and the Broadway-bound musical A Sign of the Times. He is also the dance arranger on Disney's production of Beauty and the Beast on the Disney Dream. As a ranger and orchestrator, he worked on HBO's documentary Six by Sondheim. He was also the orchestrator on the Audrey McDonald Live at Lincoln Center and Audrey McDonald at Carnegie Hall. His musical Our New Town and Game On are both having world premieres. His work can be heard on numerous albums, including Sondheim on Sondheim and Audrey McDonald and the New York Philharmonic. The list of his composing credits is growing every day. Well, hello. I'm sitting here with David Davin. How are you? I'm doing great. Happy to be here. Thanks. I'm so excited that you're doing this. And uh, we're actually back at Chetler Studios, who graciously gives me the rooms for free if I record here. We're actually in my favorite room, which is Studio 4. I love this room. There's a great ceiling, yeah. lights, lots of light. Yeah, actually Penthouse. Penthouse 4. One thing that I love about this place, they have like a 48-hour huge discount. Like the other day, I was tired, and I just came in and meditated before I saw a show, and it was like $6 to... They're amazing here. And they've just renovated too. I know. I can't believe it. It's a funny story. My very first musical I wrote when I was in New York was performed at the theater downstairs. Oh, really? So I'm so thrilled you're here because being a a dance arranger and musician is such an integral part of musicals and this whole world. But it's also something I don't really know a lot about. So I'm going to get to uh, learn as well. So go from the beginning. Where are you from and how did you get started? Well, I grew up in Boston, well, a suburb of Boston called Framingham, Massachusetts. It actually randomly happened to be the largest town in the country at one point. No longer is. I grew up there. I did a lot of summer camps where I was studying as a performer. I started writing music at the age of eight. I was mainly self-taught at piano. Really? I took it for two months. My mom said, David, if you don't keep practicing, I'm going to stop your lessons. I wouldn't practice, I would just sit at the piano, keep writing, and she stopped my lessons, but I kept playing. And I don't know where I became a a theater fan, but I I just loved, loved musicals. And I remember having my cassette tapes. And one year, a gift of a Broadway fake book, which was like this really thick 500 page of various Broadway musicals. And it would have just the melody and the chords, and I would sit down at the at the piano and just play and figure out chords and use my ear and because I was such a fan I knew the songs really well and that was kind of my training and so when I started to write more I didn't really know a lot about notating music so I created my own sort of way of notating and 
I look back now, I'm like, what was I thinking? I, I have no idea how to read this, but it made sense to me as a kid. Oh, wow. So is that called like trained by ear? Or just self-taught mainly. Are you just brilliant? What's funny is my, um, well, thank you. Um, <laughs> what's funny is my ear is a very strange one. I can hear well, but I sometimes when I have to do something called transcription, which is like you hear a piece and then you write it out, mm. my ears sort of plays tricks on me. So sometimes I'll hear something the way that I want to hear it. Mm. Um, I think that's also why I me mean, as a dance arranger or as a composer, it allows me to have my own style and approach. The way I hear things is the way I hear them. And other people have a gift that they can hear something and then play it exactly as mm. it is on piano or they, you know, they hear a jazz solo and they can break it down. But for me, it's, that's very laborious. I don't have that gift. I've always been envious of, but I'm also very fortunate that I have my own sort of path in the way that I hear things. And you were a performer as well. Yeah, I actually started off as a dancer. I studied a little bit with the Boston Ballet. Oh, wow. Um, I took hip hop in sixth grade, which I knew nothing about, but it was the way my parents were like, if you want to take dance, you're going to take hip hop. Um, <laughs> it's a boys hip hop class. Uh, and then slowly they realized that I had... You know, I was some very strong dancer, so I started taking with the Boston Ballet. And because I started to dance so late toward high school, I got put into a, a group with people my age for two days a week. And then the other two days a week, I was with nine-year-olds in Ballet One. So I learned the vocabulary. Uh, so it was a very strange mix-up of being with people my own age and then two days a week being with people much younger. Which were probably all girls. Yeah, I think there were maybe two boys in, in the class of 30 there and then when I did the people my age it was there were actually three or four boys it was very funny to have this class and you know be dancing as a teenager with you know nine-year-olds and be learning what a tondu and plie was and how to do it I mean, so were you bullied or teased or anything like that yeah you know and I find that more more people were bullied than not. Yeah. Uh, and I was definitely one of those kids that was always bullied. And this is such an embarrassing story, but I'm oh, going to turn this up then. No. <laughs> <laughs> I was in fifth grade and I had my jazz shoes in my bag. And I remember I was going from school to, to dance class and uh, the, there was a bully in school and he saw my dance shoes and he said, David's taking ballet, David's taking ballet. And I took them back and I said, it's not ballet, it's jazz. <laughs> so throughout the rest of my school time there, I was like, it's not ballet, it's jazz, it's not ballet, it's jazz. <laughs> but I've had some really, you know, I had some other really awful times. There was this kid that was very, very tall and he'd follow me home. And one time he, he threw rocks at me, calling me, you know, faggot and gay and loser. And he just kept throwing rocks at me and... It was awful and uh, yeah, but I, I found my group of friends and I'd always go home and write my music. One of the first musicals I wrote was a show about a kid getting bullied and oh. it was called A Thousand One Doors. I made my middle school produce it. Uh, That's impressive. Yeah, I did it in the eighth grade. Uh, it was a, about an hour long. I got all my friends and built set. I had my mom help me, my dad and people from the community participating. But it was about a kid who, who moved to a new school and he gets there and everyone makes fun of him and he doesn't fit in. He runs home in the middle of the day just so upset that his first day of school wasn't going well. And this woman appears and says, I'm going to take you to a magical place called The Thousand and One Doors. He goes to this land and throughout different doors he opens things and enters 
these worlds, and within each world, he learns a new thing that helps him build his confidence, his self-awareness, his personality, believing in himself. And by the end, it's his first day of school again. And you see how he approaches, you know, the bullies and people. Uh, wow. On him. Have you ever wanted to revisit it? My mom keeps telling me, David, you've got to do this. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, it could be she, the next Pinkalicious. Right? I should do it. Yeah. I love the idea. I love the title, A Thousand and One Doors. I think I need time to figure out how to do it, but I, I think it's, you know, a story that a lot of people would connect with and uh, felt very personal. Well, you don't have a lot of time. You, I mean, you are so busy. One other question, like, because then after you dance, did you become a band geek as well? I mean, when did you become like a musician? When did you transfer from one to the other? When I was applying to college, my mom had a great idea because I was writing a lot to put together a portfolio of various pictures from shows I had done at summer camps to professional theater to high school shows. And in this portfolio of pictures and resume, and she also got a lot of like teachers I had worked with to write little testimonials about working with me. I also had a list of every song I had written up until then, as well as two songs and the music in it. I went, I did my undergrad at the Hart School of Music in Connecticut. Oh, okay. And then my master's at Carnegie Mellon. And when I went to Hart at my audition, I brought the portfolio with me and they stopped. And most schools like would kind of toss away the portfolio. Eh, we don't need to look at this. But for some reason at Hart, they looked at the portfolio and they said, are you interested in going into music? It seemed like you're a composer. And at the time I was like, no, it's just, I'm self-taught. I really don't know anything about music. I want to, I'm going to actually be a director choreographer. Oh. And the guy said, let me give you a name. And he gave me a name of a professor at the school. And I ended up not, not even following up with the teacher there. But I got into the school. And within my sophomore year, I, I just got cast as one of the brothers in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. And in, during my time there, a faculty member had heard that I was coaching singers and writing a lot of music. A lot of students would come to me for coaching. And they said, David, we hear you should go into music. Like, you've got a gift in this. And I was like, well, I'm self-taught. I don't really know much about music. And I was always interested in orchestration. I was even taking orchestration my first year. And that's a very funny story, but I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. And they said, you should look into it, see if, if it interests you. So they gave me two names of students that had sort of done something similar. And I talked to them, and they told me about their experience. And I was like, oh, this sounds great for me. I, I think I want to switch but i'm nervous i i don't have any credits i don't know much about music so i ended up building my own self-defined major in music direction and composition and so i did that my junior and senior year so i left sort of performing i still performed in a lot of summer stocks during the summer i didn't want to let that go yet. yeah but it was time it felt like the right decision i knew i didn't want to perform i knew what i didn't want to do i wasn't sure exactly what i wanted to do and i didn't think i had the talent, the knowledge to become a musician. So I finally took full piano my junior year and senior year of college. And I had a teacher that, that was a very gifted pianist uh, and teacher, I think, for people who were in a traditional sense of, of uh, piano training. Because I was very different, my reading music uh, at the time was very low. My abilities just weren't what somebody studying piano should have been. Mm. And I could play almost any musical theater song and I could just use my ear and do it. And um, and I was faking a lot because I could 
I, I assumed I knew how to play. And he was like, no, we're going to start you at the basic level and start you from square one. Just like you did with your ballet. Yeah, but unfortunately it broke me down in a place where I didn't fully understand. He didn't understand how I thought of music. I always oh. felt music in my body and I loved rhythm. And it, it made me feel like I couldn't play piano anymore. So my two years, I like wouldn't practice. Uh, I would just write. I got so disconnected from playing piano. I couldn't, I, oh. I never wanted to pick up piano after college. I was ready to be done with school and I was like, I'm not, I'm, I'm a worse musician than I thought. I'm not ready to move to New York yet. So I applied to grad school and I wanted to not study composition. I wanted to study conducting because I thought it would help me be a better music director, help me be a better composer because I'd learn about form, uh, working with singers uh, and instrumentalists, uh, learn more about instrumentation, uh, learn more repertoire. And so I applied to two schools. I applied to Carnegie Mellon and Cincinnati Conservatory of Music. And I remember when I was in high school. Uh, two uh, tiny schools. Two tiny schools. And I loved them because they were great music schools and great theater schools. And I knew that whatever program I wanted to get into, I wanted to be involved with the theater program. And when I was applying to undergraduate at Carnegie Mellon, I, I remember auditioning in the city. Uh, and then I ended up auditioning also in Pittsburgh at Point Park. And when I was at my Point Park audition, I, I wanted to visit the Carnegie Mellon campus. And I walked onto the campus, and I kid you not, Brad, the, the moment I stepped on the campus, I was on the corner, I still remember it, I was on the corner of the campus. Now there's a big pole with, um, there's a structure of like people walking up to the sky, but before that, there was, there was nothing there. And I stood on the corner, and there were leaves circling, and the wind was blowing. And, I, and the professor that walked out of the, it's right in front of the theater building, walked out of the building as these leaves were like circling me. And I was like, I belong here. I belong here. The professor that I auditioned for walked out and she smiled at me. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I got into the school. I'm going, <laughs> I'm going. The universe is telling me. And the wind was blowing and my hair and just the weather was perfect. I ended up getting rejected about two weeks later. And the feeling was so intense. I was like, I'm destined to go here. I was so upset. And I think a lot of people, when you're applying to school and don't get into the right one, you're like, what am I doing? But funny enough, I ended up going to Hard and all the music stuff. So when it came time to go to grad school, I was like, I'm going to go to Carnegie Mellon. I know it. I applied for instrumental conducting, which I knew nothing about. Coming from musical theater, I knew nothing about classical music, uh, except for what I took in my piano lessons. And, you know, being a fan of also classical music, I only knew sort of obvious pieces but I applied and they rejected me they said you're not you're we actually don't have this program anymore it doesn't exist so I was like I have to get into CCM so I went to my audition it was down to me and somebody else and that's actually another good story we'll get there at CCM I went and I played piano and I sat in some master classes I saw a production a week later I got a phone call telling me that I'm, I'm they're gonna go with somebody else and around a week or so after that, I got an email from a professor at Carnegie Mellon. So to go back, when I applied to Carnegie Mellon the first time for graduate school, I emailed the theater department saying, I'm applying to music school. Do you know anyone that can help me understand like the music theater world at the music school? And she gave me the name of a professor at the music school. His name was Robert Page. And I wrote to him, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't hear anything back. So he ended up emailing me the week after my CCM audition saying, hi, my name is Robert Page. I came across your resume and application. I think you emailed me back in the fall. 
I'm still looking for someone to apply to the choral conducting program at Carnegie Mellon. I accept one person a year, and I'm very impressed with your resume. Are you interested in coming in to audition? Now, I knew nothing about choral music, and I was also in tech for a show at the time that it was like my final project of undergraduate as the music director. And I called my mom, and I said, you know, I don't know if this is right for me. I don't know anything about classical music, choral music. I was never also a vocalist. So I was like, I know nothing about voice in that way. I'm not an opera singer. She said, David, you've been wanting to go to Carnegie Mellon. They're coming to you. Just say yes. You can decide if you want to do the program later. It's the best advice I've ever been given. So I, I wrote to the professor immediately, said, yes, I'd love to come in. He said, your audition is going to be in two weeks. Here are your requirements. He said, get the G. Shermer edition of a Brahms motet and a piece by John Carigliano and you'll conduct a choir. I had never conducted a choir. Uh, one of the pieces, the, the Brahms Motet from G, the G. Schirmer edition, Brahms Motet was in German. So I found a student who could help me with learn German diction, and I found the assistant conductor for the choral program at heart who worked with me on my conducting of the piece. And I truly didn't know what I was doing, and I think I met both of them two or three times. The day before my audition, the assistant conductor was looking at my list of what I needed to do at my audition. He said, David, you got the wrong sheet music. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, he said, you've got the right piece, but it's a different edition. You need the G. Schirmer edition. You got the E.C. Schirmer edition. Now, I didn't know that there were two Schirmer companies. There are two different publishers that happen to have the same half a name, Schirmer, but there's G. Schirmer and E.C. Schirmer, and they're very different. And I got the E.C. Schirmer edition of this Brahms motet. So I'm so bummed. And I'm walking out of the hall and I bump into the head of the choral program at heart. And he says, oh, how's your application and prep going? I said, you're not going to believe it. I got the wrong sheet music. He said, well, what do you need? I said, I need the G. Schirmer edition of the Brahms motet number six. And I got the E.C. Schirmer. He started laughing. I said, why are you laughing? He said, well, I wanted to do it with my choir a couple weeks ago and I didn't. And I have it in my bag. He literally pulled out the G. Schirmer edition of the Brahms Motet. It's like, oh my goodness. So I went home, studied that. Oh my God. I was like, okay, now there's a sign that I have to like really focus on this. So I go to my audition and I, it was clear I didn't know how to work with the singers. and didn't know what I was listening to, but Dr. Page gave me a full conducting lesson in front of 60 singers. And I think he really enjoyed how I was taking his notes and you could see I was passionate. And he accepted me, and he had never accepted somebody that was from a music theater background. But his passion also was in musical theater. He did the, he actually did, was known for doing the two piano arrangement of Most Happy Fellow that was on Broadway. Oh, yes. Uh, that was his arrangement. And he's done a lot of work for Stephen Sondheim, Marvin Hamlish, and his grandson is Alexander Gemignani, because uh, his daughter was Carol Ann Page. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and he truly taught me everything I know. And I'm very grateful for that mentorship. He passed away two years ago, um, but I, I talk about him all the time because he, he's had a huge influence on me and I know a lot of students as well. Well, it sounds like your mom also was a good influence. In yeah, she was. I feel like I've mentioned her a lot. Yeah, no, which is great. Um, yeah, my whole family, my sister Lisa, my dad. Yeah, they've all been very supportive. They've, of course, been very nervous about going into a career in the arts because making money is very tricky. And, how do you get your insurance? How do you have your pension? How do you find your next job? But I, I do feel very blessed 
that they've understood that it's something that I've always wanted to do. My dad tells the story of, I wasn't doing homework, and he said, you're not allowed to play piano until you finish your homework. And I guess my response to him was, you're ruining my career. <laughs> so in the Broadway community, you are known as a dance arranger. Mm -hmm. And that's become like uh, your niche, and it's probably how you are making money. How did you, I mean, because that's very specific. How did you go with all this music background, that become where you specified? When I first moved to the city, I was picking up a lot of various music jobs. I was assisting, I was orchestrating, I was doing a lot of music preparation, copy work it's called. And I got a job working on on a clear day, you can see forever, which was up. They were doing a lab of it, which came to Broadway yeah. uh, for a limited time. That Joanne Hunter, which is how Brad and I met, ah. uh, doing a, sh a show called Sign of the Times. But Joanne and I met doing on a clear day, and I was doing the music copy work on it. And how it was working was I was there, and I'd get all the music notes, and I'd have to make the music look pretty. And I saw Joanne working with the dancers. It was a very small cast, but there were a couple things and I was still new to saying I was a musician and you know I couldn't help but feeling like I wanted Joanne to choreograph on me. I loved her energy. Oh, I yes. loved it. and I told the music director at the time, oh, she's amazing and you know I used to be a dancer and I love I love how she talks to dancers. He had told her, you know, my music assistant was a dancer. If you need an extra body, you should use him. And she came up to me in her very magical Joanne way and said, I hear you're a dancer. I might need to pull you at some time if you're interested. And it was more than just like joking, sort of fun. And I said, well, I'd love to grab lunch with you at some point. She said, great, let's do it. And we built this friendship. And one time we were in the city after the lab was over and she told me about a project she wanted to create. She had an injury and wanted to write a piece about how dancers and any professionals are trying to figure out sort of their identity and what they do. And it's a really beautiful piece that we're creating called perfect spiral and she told me what she imagined this opening sequence to be and that night I ran home and I wrote a piece and I sent it to her I said I know that you weren't asking for a writer but I just was so excited and she said I love this let's keep going and she said have you thought about dance arranging too and I said well I love dance breaks I've always loved I, I was always obsessed with crazy for you dance breaks mm. for some reason that show was such a huge influence on the craft of writing a great dance arrangement. And she said, well, I'm about to work on a piece and I need a dance arranger. Would you be interested? I said, of course. And it turned out being The Nutty Professor, which was Marvin Hamlish's last musical right before he passed away. And I didn't know anything about like how to go about writing a dance arrangement. So Marvin approved that I, I would write them. And Joanne and I sort of hit a dialogue of how we wanted to work. And it was a really wonderful experience. And for me, it encompassed getting to interpret music in many different ways, which as a composer, you get to reinvent and think differently. And I love taking Marvin's music and spinning it and questioning it and also saying, what if we did this? What if we did this? Uh, and Joanne's got a beautiful gift of allowing me as an arranger to come up with something so ugly and weird. And then together we'll flush that out and then it'll turn into something very special and unique. So it, it's fun. I really love working with Joanne because she allows us to figure out story and then play and story and play and create things that just, I, I don't think I've ever done before.
Um, and I think that's a really important thing as a composer or as an arranger is to try to push yourself to do things that you haven't heard. And because that was also a 1960s piece and there've been a lot of 1960s musicals or people that have written pastiche 60s things. We wanted to figure out a way that we could do it in a way that felt fresh. And so the amount of research that we did and playing and cutting things and saying, what if we did this? And how do we tell the story? And made the guys dance and they try to get the girls and then the girls say no and then they dance together and everybody then is dancing and figuring out those sort of stories is very fun. And a lot of times it'll just be me like tinkling at the piano and she goes, oh, can we do this? Or, you know, let's try that. I'm assuming your dance background completely helps with the arranging because you feel it. It totally does because I've always connected to, to music in my body. I know, you know, sort of things like I loved, like when you turn really fast and then you hit a pose or when you kick or when you're doing crosses and you love to, you know, being in dance class and hearing the teacher like travel, travel, travel. There's that sensation of like moving and, and how the music feels and grooves and I love that feeling. So it helps when she's like, can we take it from this section or that section? One of the greatest things with any of the choreographer collaborators I work with is figuring out the names of sections. Right. Uh, you know, you're like, oh, take it from the upside down chair dance or something. Or, yeah. You know, or that's that dancer's thing. And you label these things and you sort of have your own language. Well, speaking of that, you obviously speak choreographer language. So when she, she says, ah, this is the uh, ah, uh, you know exactly what she totally. I love the uh, uh, uhs and the I don't like it when it goes up here. And I'm like, oh, I know exactly what you mean. You want it. And a lot of times when she says it, you see her like move her hips or her shoulders or her hands. Something we also love is playing with humor in music. So that's a really fun thing because that that's a very expressive emotion that story is a big part of it. So getting to use sometimes sounds that are articulate, except for just guttural things is very helpful. Yeah. Well, and I've known Joanne for a long time, but I've never seen her light up as much as the day you showed up in Delaware. <laughs> I was like, wow, who is this person? That, I mean, she was, I mean, it was like Christmas when you walked in. So She makes me light up. I mean, I, I, I adore her yeah. very much. And I know on that project, you had already done a lot of it, but you came for one new piece, which actually was my favorite piece in the show, Is and it's all a dance. The like, act two opening. Act two opening. Yeah. You know, it just kind of came out of nowhere. And... It was storytelling just through dance, which is the best. And that was all research. How did that come about? I mean, how does you say this is a piece of music that exists in the 60s and it's not, there's no vocals. It's just going to be a dance piece. The Joanne was very clear what she wanted the story to be. It was women in the 60s that are figuring out how to gain power. And not in the sense, and she was like, she always was very clear. I don't want it to feel like we're, putting men down, but that we are rising up and being one together. But she said in doing so, it's also can be playful, it can be sexy, it can be, it's also, we do have to say no at some point. So there's a part in it where, you know, the guys ask the ladies to do something and, you know, they're like, no, we're going to not do it. You do it yourself. So the very first version that we, we explored, I actually wrote something. Like I was like, I create a Spotify playlist of various songs that I find inspirational. And they could be things from, let's say we're doing a sign of the times. They could be 60s things. They could be not 60s things. They could be things from the 50s, current things that feel sort of 60s, even things like Mad Men, some of the theme music. Like I, I just pulled from anything that felt was part of a world that I wanted to create musically. And I listened to it and I research, I find grooves and tempos. And I came across one song and I was like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to compose something. Because it was a, the, a sign of the times, is an, it's a catalog of musical of different songs. 
And I was like, oh, let's let me pull from different styles so that we can create something to launch at two. And when I played it for the music director and director, their thought was like, why do we need something sort of original? Even though it's it sounds like it's so 60s. The other thing that the, the instruction that I was given was uh, it needs to take us from one part of the 60s to the next. And I really wanted to figure out a way to capture a transition. So I wrote this thing and they said, we really like this groove. Can we put more themes and whatnot in? And I said, well, this is what I based it on. And I played the song and they're like, well, why don't we just get the rights to that song? Oh. And I was like, if we can do that, that's better. So they got the rights and I was playing along with it. And Joanne was like, this is what the story is. And we had Boots Are Made For Walking in the first act. And I said, oh, that's such an empowerment piece. Why not use the groove of this new song with Boots and kind of interlaying them and then and we figured, mapped out our story in which each section, which was the women first, then the men, with the women, then the men do a little bit, then men leave and the women are there at the end. There's a, still a story within that, um, but that was sort of our structure of how the music progressed. And it was a lot of like back and forth and playing. And, and then once orchestration gets added, which Joe Church did, uh, adds a whole nother layer of wonderful colors and textures. And it's very collaborative that way. Yeah. The ideas that Joe brought to it and then I'd say, you know, can we try it this way? Oh, what if we did this? And it always works from like one idea and then building and making it very collaborative. So I know like oftentimes when I've done texts and shows and stuff like that, the day the dance arranger comes with the orchestra and they're adding it and all of a sudden you're realizing that they just put a symbol in for your kick and you're just like, they're making an arrangement off of my movement. It's just, it's crazy exciting. Even if you're just one of 27 people, like 27 people all doing that kick. So. You are one of them. I think it's cool. Obviously, you end up breaking, branching off, not breaking up with Joanne, branching off, and like you work for Kathleen Marshall. How does you audition for? Do you say, "Oh, hey, you're doing Unsinkable Molly Brown"? Is it word of mouth? How do you find jobs? Most things are word of mouth. That one, I was the assistant music director conductor on Unsinkable Molly Brown, and David Chase was brought on to do the dance arrangements, and he couldn't be in Denver for the process. So he agreed to do the three big dance breaks that were in the show. And then there were a lot of little interstitial dance transitions, waltzes, things that needed to be created. We agreed that David would do the big dance breaks and I would do all the interstitial music, including transitions, anything that also needed additional dance. She was one of the first new people I had worked with and her process is wonderful and very different than Joanne's. I remember there was one day and Kathleen's very specific with what she likes. She'll be like, this is what the form is. The thing I learned from Kathleen is how important to talk about form is in, in terms of what melodies you're hearing before you launch back into the song. That was really amazing to see her and David work that way. And they'd say, you know, this, and they talked a lot about the structure of the song before they'd figure out how the dance break could work. Um, and Joy and I do that too. We, we talk a lot about the structure of the song and where the dance should specifically go and but it was really fascinating to hear them what melody we wanted to hear right before the vocals came back in. And then they would talk about like the, the structure and things as you do with any sort of choreographer story and who's dancing where and what sort of vibe would be. And so her process, when she told me for some like the waltzes or transitions, she was like, I love this melody here. I remember there was one day where I was working on transitioning to a scene. It was Molly Brown who... She was inviting people over for high tea. And Kathleen said she wanted like the melody of the song before. And I took the melody and made it a very funny, baroque, 
whimsical version of the melody and they have like little trills and things. I remember the first time I played it, she laughed. She was like, that's very surprising. It was very fun to kind of have her be like, this is what I want, and then get to figure out how to make it match the story and character. I love that. Right now you're working on something kind of huge, new, talk of the town. I'm so excited. And so uh, tell me about Beetlejuice. I love the movie. And I think everybody that's actually working on the show loves the movie. So we're all very protective as well as open to making it be as fantastic and emotional and zany and odd as possible. Because there is something very odd and quirky that is weird and delightful. I'm working with Connor Gallagher, who is such a visionary. I love how he works. We did Beauty and the Beast together for Disney Cruise Line. That was our first experience together. And Connor had this wonderful idea on Be Our Guest, which was we never actually see Belle eat the food. Let's do a let's do a version of Be Our Guest where we can actually see Belle experiencing food. And he had this idea of it being a French course meal. So we had all these different courses, you know, your salad, your, your dessert, your cheeses. And so each section of dance was a different course. He's a great merge of how Kathleen and Joanne work. He's very game for anything and also very clear with what he sort of wants. And there's a piece in Beetlejuice that he was like, I know what I'm feeling, but I can't quite figure out what it is. So you go run with it. This is what I'm thinking. And then let's come back. So I said, great. I said, I, I love what you said. And I kind of took it and I didn't figure out a structure, but I came up with three minutes of music and let's work from that. So I played the three minutes. He goes, I love this. He said, I love this section. I love this section. This section doesn't work for me. I don't like the ending, but I like this part. Can we put that part, which was toward the end at the front? And he kind of did this sort of Frankenstein thing that like, I, and he heard it twice. He was like, I know exactly what we're doing with He put it together. The flow was impeccable. It, it had an arc. It had the story. It had the emotion. It had the zaniness. It had the colors. It allowed the ensemble and Beetlejuice and Lydia to, to have their arc together. And it just took great shape. And then through there, we've added more layers. Over our past couple of years of developing the show, we've gotten to add more dance breaks throughout the development, which has been really fun. What I love about Connor's way of working is he's really good at keeping the bar very high and pushing someone to do their best work at all times without you ever feeling like you've not done good work. Mm. So he makes you say, oh, how can we make this, let's make this the best. He says, okay, what? He says, something's something's not right here, take a look at that. And it's like, oh yeah, like the ideas are there, but how can I make it better? It's what you want from a collaborator is an honesty as well as an understanding and appreciation and also an openness and to say anything can sort of go. And one of the things that I've, I love too is he's like, oh, you know, can we insert this here? Can we try this? I even seeing how he works with dancers, it's, this, it's the same. He's always pushing them, but also thinking about like what's going to be realistic to do eight shows a week and what's going to be impressive and help tell the story and look glorious but also what's sustainable and not gonna you know make people uh, feel like they're hurting their bodies because it's so athletic and it's demanding and, and I, I have a really big you know I think every choreographer I've worked with has such a great appreciation of the people that they work with and that's always been important for me is to always work with people I love to be around right. uh, and I admire 
Connor so much. I love what he's done with Beetlejuice. I love the whole team. So are you guys going through changes? Are you cutting things, adding things? I mean, you guys start previews soon. We start previews in less than a week, March 28th. We did a run in D.C., which was wonderful, and we got to see it all come to life. And since D.C., there have been a lot of changes, figuring out how to tell the story uh, in a more concise way, what is at the heart of the story. One of the things I, uh, you know, I think we all love about the film is that it's, it's got these great characters and you know it's a story of people taking over a house and death and so the writers have really taken those themes and figured out how to make them singable and have a lot of heart and in this newest draft it's like you're laughing nonstop throughout the entire show and in the middle of the second act there's a scene that just everything sort of builds to it's a beautiful heartbreaking moment of family and what we have and what we want and things that we do to each other. It's incredibly emotional. I, I wrote to the book writers right before we left the rehearsal room, just telling them how blown away I was about their, their work and the edits that they made. And what I love about any art form is the amount of layers that you put into a piece. I call it the climb every mountain analogy in sound of music, which is like you hear her say in the end of Act One, climb every mountain to Maria with Mother Alice and then at the end she actually climbs a mountain now it's very literal but it doesn't feel cheesy it's got all these layers into it do what's right for you and, um, and they sing it at the end and it's just all the stars align and they've done that with Beetlejuice they've done such a truly truly special and um, remarkable job at having a lot of craft and humor and beauty and zaniness and being weird and the whole whole group of people everyone's got something very quirky and strange and lovable and odd about them and I think that's that's sort of celebrates Tim Burton's work on the film Danny Elfman and um, the cast and all the other creatives on, on the on the film I, I feel very fortunate to, to be part of something that you know is a lot of people are excited about and hopefully it will do well and people will receive it the way that we um, we hope oh absolutely so how different is it when you're arranging something to say like Beetlejuice is so brand new, then you have Disaster, which are new takes on, on classics. Is there a difference of creative dance arrangement or is it similar? Kind of a mix of both. It's never my job as a dance arranger to rewrite songs or add things that feel like they're not part of the world. However, the function of a dance break is one, to have these production numbers that gives such thrill and energy and story. And you don't want to hear the same thing over and over and over again. So figuring out how to interpret it in a way that you hadn't heard before, but also uh, something that feels in the voice of the composer. And it's my job to also not be existent. If I do a good job, you wouldn't really know that my work is there. But I do take pride in being able to push the envelope on what that is. Like, for example, in Beetlejuice, there's a number that we did for the first chunk of previews in D.C. It was fine. Like, I really liked the old dance break, but it just didn't have the pop. It was sort of in the same world. And remember, Eddie Perfect kept saying throughout our rehearsal process for it, it was like, I wish it, it went somewhere different. And he would sort of, like, sing ideas to me and explore making it more jazzy. And he would add all these, like, hits and things. And we did it. And just, but something still wasn't right. And I remember Connor called, he said, when are you coming to D.C.? Because I had a show of mine that was running in Pittsburgh. 
he said, can you come and I want you to see dance breaks and the number at the end of Act Two needs some looking at. So I came and I said, I know what it is. It doesn't lift off the way that Eddie had said he wanted. He said, we need a different texture. So I did all this research. I listened to all these different songs that, that uh, felt in the mood and all of a sudden it just like walked in. I was like, Eureka, I found it. And I wrote it and everyone was like, yes, this is it. And it's, uh, even at our band rehearsal the other day, I was like, I love this, you know, it's, it's so exciting. You, know, you have the trumpet up high and you have this cool groove underneath and it really matches the song in a way that it, it supports it without it pulling away focus. And it's a tricky thing because you need it to advance you need it to match, but it needs to also complement and feel unique and tell a story. Right. That's a lot. So it seems like being a dance writer in Broadway is definitely uh, your bread and butter right now, but it's not your primary passion, I think. You have to be wrong, is that you're also a writer and composer. So you have your own stuff that's you're also doing simultaneously right now. Next week at Wagner College, you're, mm-hmm. you're having a presentation and then the show, interactive show in Pittsburgh, or do you all the same thing? What, tell me, how are you doing a million things? Um, well, I do believe being in the arts, you have to have many irons in the fire because you never know what's going to take. Budgets go away and whatnot. And things take a long time to get on its feet. Um, Beetlejuice has been in development for years and same with the sign of the times. Who knows what steps are going to happen and when money and theaters open up. So in terms of writing, I've had a very, um, also very unique path in terms of writing. Even though I've written my own shows, when I started coming to the city and working on things, I was writing music for a lot of plays with music. I was working with a director, uh, Ed Iskandar. We developed all these really intense marathon plays at the Flea. We did a show called The Mysteries, which was a six-hour piece with a cast of 48. I had 23, and they were called the Angels. Uh, it was the mystery cycle, Old Testament, New Testament, and it was 48 different playwrights. You know, it was a great list of playwrights. David Henry Wong, Craig Lucas, Jeff Whitty. It was insane. And before every rehearsal, I wouldn't find out until like the night before, or a couple nights before, what I needed to teach. And so I'd write all these transition things right before I needed to teach them. So my skills of needing to write quickly and well just needed to happen. And it pushed me into some really strange things. I've always had, like, been writing. And I love also working with many different people. So right now, at the show in Pittsburgh, I wrote with a guy, Marcus Stevens, who I met at a writer's retreat at a called the Johnny Mercer Songwriters Workshop, which is at, held at Northwestern, sponsored by ASCAP. And I had seen him writing, and I really was a fan of his lyrics. And he had worked at Pittsburgh CLO. I was an intern there, and I've done a lot of work for them, and also the, the Jimmy Awards, mm. which is the, the National High School Music Theater Awards. And I've done work at their summer season, and so I have a great relationship with them. So I called them up, and I said, I have this really strange idea of an interactive game show musical. I said, I don't really know what that is, but I love things where the audience can participate. I also hate when audience members are active in the show, but I love if it's done well and mm-hmm. I don't feel like I'm being forced into anything. Yeah, absolutely. And they have a small theater space that's a cabaret house, 200 seats, and they said, we have a small musical festival happening in April. Why don't we commission you to write a piece for the space, for the festival? I said, great. They said, do you have any ideas for collaborators? And I said, well, 
I had an idea. I haven't worked with him. I know that you know him, and he's you know part of the CLO family. Would you be game if we all have a conversation? And he said, "Who is it?" I said, "Marcus." He said, "Oh, I love Marcus." So we all got on the phone and we talked. We started brainstorming ideas. We pitched something, and I, I wasn't totally right, uh, happy with it. It was a little too kitschy of a game show musical. It wasn't my taste. It was like sort of a 1970s. And Marcus was like, I agree, something's not right about here. So then we started researching and finding all these different game shows. And I said to Marcus, what if we looked at the more serious game shows that came out of like the early 2000s? Mm. And we ended up writing this piece called Game On. We came up with the story. Then Marcus went away and wrote the script in December. I was away in January. In February, we started writing songs for six weeks between February and the first weeks of March, which I was also in the lab at Beetlejuice in March at the same time. And then I left the Beetlejuice lab early to go to this other lab of Game On. And we had just started writing the songs and we wrote a full musical. We started our lab, I think it was like March 25th or something, for two weeks, did a presentation in April. In June of that year, they said, we'd love to do a full production of the show. Are you interested? Of course, I was like, yeah. And Mark was like, I'm nervous, but let's do it. I was like, great, if you're on board, I'm on board. So we both were like, let's dive in together. So we went into full production. It was a 12 week run, less than a year from when we had started writing musical. And that's not normal. No. That is very bizarre. We can't really wrong. I'm really proud of the piece. I'm really proud of the work and the world and story. And I hope more people get to see it. And then what's going on at Wagner next weekend? I love writing things for, I, I love young talent. Like I said, I do like the Jimmy Awards. I do the Bloomy Awards, which is in Charlotte. And a lot of my students from Charlotte have actually won the Jimmy's. There's a collaborator I work with, Gabriel Jason Dean and his wife, Jesse Dean. Gabe and I have written a bunch of projects together. And he said, I want to do something about gun violence. Are you interested in developing it with us? And I said, absolutely. I, I would love to do something with youth and gun violence. And so we got accepted into the Civilians, which is a, a group that does investigative theater, which means they do interviews. And like, they have a group called the R&D group, Research and Development. Mm. It's, it's a year long and you meet with other writers and directors and create a piece over the year. And so we wrote this piece. You know, this past year, there have been so many shootings. Yes. And it's heartbreaking. And you feel sort of helpless because there's not really much that you can do. And Gabe was like, we should look at this. And I said, well, I have a friend that teaches at Wagner College and is trying to build up new musicals there. Why don't I talk to her? Cause, and it's a piece about college kids. There's something called Campus Carry where certain colleges allow students and faculty and staff members, if they have a gun permit, to carry guns on campus. It's a fictional story, obviously inspired by these interviews and the events that have happened across the country. Yeah, so they're doing a lab end of March, and then we'll do a full production in October of 2019. That's crazy awesome. So one of your other hats is also as an orchestrator, <laughs> but you've got to orchestrate with people like Stephen Sondheim. I mean, you did uh, his Six on Sondheim, you did, uh, you were nominated for a Grammy. For Sondheim on Sondheim. Yeah. Yeah. So how, I mean, working with someone like that, it seems like there's so much pressure and so much at stake, or maybe there's not. I mean, how was that orchestrating something? Well, when I did Sondheim on Sondheim, I was the music assistant. And Michael Sterobin, who I always thank for giving me my big break, had heard that I was an orchestrator. 
because he was orchestrating the show. And he said, there's some interstitial music that needs to be orchestrated. Are you interested in doing that? I said, of course. You know? yeah. So that's how I got into doing that and doing some additional orchestrations from that. With Six by Sondheim, it was with James Lapine, who is a longtime collaborator of, of Sondheim's. My partner, Andy Einhorn, was working on it as well. So Audra McDonald sang Send in the Clowns. I actually came up with the arrangement after they recorded all the video footage because there was some issues with audio. And so they wanted it also to feel a little more fresh and a new perspective and take. That was a very unique experience. And, I, you know, we didn't recut our vocals, so I had to redo on top of what was said there. Did you end up orchestrating stuff for Audra? Yeah. Yeah, I would lead with that in every conversation. Yeah, I've done three orchestrations for her. Andy is her music director and conductor. She did an Adam Guan piece called I'll Be Here. Truly beautiful story song. I had this idea of it being like a, a string quartet and Audra and piano. And so I did that. And then they did a, a New York Philharmonic concert this past year. Andy did an arrangement of Children Will Listen and Carefully Taught. So glorious. And the story of both songs together is beautiful. And um, so I got to do that. And then an arrangement of Sing Happy that I also did. I love that. I love the greats. Speaking of greats, I found this quote on you, about you, that says, David Dabin is called one of the greatest teachers of our time and has taught master classes and worked with various institutions around the U.S. and the globe. So I can actually vouch for you, but I think you're a great coach because you're currently my coach. I think the thing that I got so excited, I've told people about you, and is that you know how to communicate to whoever you're with. I'm assuming you do that with everyone. But also me coming from a dance background and you coming from a dance background, I think you understand the insecurities of it because I think even though I like have had a successful career as a singer I remember being told that, oh you're a dancer you can't sing so there's always it's like that when people talk about when they're being like a fat child or whatever and they get skinny they always have that mentality that I always feel like oh I'm still not good enough because they're they're looking at me like oh he's a ensemble boy and there should be nothing wrong with that that's the point of this podcast <laughs> you know what I mean is that there's nothing wrong with that I still think when I start every, almost every coaching session like I'm less than and then I walk out of there like I can take all the world <laughs> where does teaching fall in your life because I see like there's pictures of you all over with kids that also seems like another passion that you have I love teaching and you know, my parents always said, you should go into teaching, you should go into teaching. And I love it. Somebody asked me once, what would your perfect week be? And I think it would be, you know, in rehearsals for a show I've written, maybe on a lunch break I'd run to, you know, go see a show that I've done some dance arrangements on, go touch base on that. Then maybe go coach a couple singers and then fly away for the weekend. Maybe go like away and teach like a masterclass somewhere. And then maybe the week after go on vacation. <laughs> yeah. It's taken me a long time to figure out what my balance is and what how I define my work. And for a long time, I thought it was by my title, like saying, oh, I'm a composer, I'm an arranger, I'm a coach. Lately, it's been, no, it's actually me. People said it's always confusing when people know you from many things. Like, don't confuse people. And as a kid, I was always like, people are going to know who I am no matter what. Like, they let them be confused. And as I've gotten older, I, I've actually understood what that meant. At the time, I thought it it meant that I had to only do one thing. Mm -hmm. But I think it's being specific at what you do that that is, is what people are trying to convey when they say that sentence. So I am careful when I meet certain people of what they know in terms of how I want them to see me. So if I'm meeting, being a choreographer, they will know that I'm a dance arranger versus I'm a teacher. And of course, those other things will come into play because they, may, they also might be like, I'm writing a piece. You know, think about Joanne, you know, 
she knew me as a composer, but she met me as a copyist who happened to have been a dancer, but right. then I ended up doing dance arrangements with her. So our path is very different. So it's not that you hide, but you do want to make sure that people understand who you are. Um, and I think that's my philosophy with coaching is making sure people are not ever feeling like they need to prove anything. It's really easy when you're in an, uh, an audition setting to feel like you need to prove, and especially someone like yourself who's a vocalist and has ideas and how they want to convey a story. And you kind of get lost in the sense of like, I'm a dancer who needs to stand like a, a vocalist. Or, you know, there are lots of singers who are, are so scared that they're not a strong enough actor. And they end up trying to compensate by staying more still or um, they actually speak the song too much. And it loses that little bit of sense of sparkle um, when what they've got is actually being able to sing it more. And I think that that's a big part of my style because I, I think that's where I came from. I feel like I've had some of the most incredible teachers. I've also had some teachers that just didn't understand me. I believe as a coach, my job is never to tell you what to do but to guide you on how to get there. Mm. And a lot of times it's, people tend to focus on the wrong thing and figuring out, help, helping people understand what to focus on. So, and the other thing too that I believe is every student is different. Some people you'll tell them that they need to, to actually put more into their face and their body. Other people are telling them to do less. Some people need to breathe less. Other people need to breathe way more because mm. they're not breathing enough. Some people are, their diction is too sloppy. They need more. You know, some people are focusing way too much on their sound and need to focus on the story. Some people are so scared of looking silly that if they just add in a little bit of silliness, then they, it actually makes sense. And a lot of people come to me because they're feeling like they're stuck. Mm. Uh, I've, I've gotten a reputation as, a, as the coach that like when people are feeling like they can't quite crack it, either consistently like going in, getting called back, but not booking, or they've used all the same songs and they're just tired of it. They can't figure out why something's not right, or they've been told that they're a terrible singer and they don't know how to believe in themselves again. Mm. I feel very honored that I'm, I have a gift of helping them what they see of themselves, being able to show that. There was an analogy I remember telling one student who was like trying to let people see them the way that they wanted to be seen versus mm. the way that they were. And I said, it's like you're cooking this wonderful meal, but you're actually chewing the food for the person. You're not letting them have the process of the texture, the taste. They might not even like the food. It's not your job to say, but it's your job to prepare the food and then give it to them to chew, digest. They can choose to eat one bite, 12 bites, get dessert after they can choose to ask for seconds it's not your job to chew the food for them and it's also you know a lot of times actors always apologize for their performance it's not good enough and i said it's similar to the food analogy it's like you've cooked chicken parmesan eight million times but the one time you happen to cook it for this one person you're like i'm sorry it's just not the same as when it comes out it ruins it for the person that's having it. Mm. It's still probably going to be great yeah. because you've put your heart into it. Yes, you might not have had the same tomatoes, but it's still going to be great. A lot of people tend to apologize for things that they don't need to. And I'm guilty of that. I'll, I'll cook something. I'll say, I'm sorry, it's not as good as I made it last time. Nobody wants to eat that. Yeah. Do you find that like when you work with like kids in the ensemble, that there's a common mistake or there's something that we as a, a group, when we come into coachings that we already just need to get over? 
one of the things I love about ensembles and how ensembles, when they're led well, and we've got a group of dancers, singers, actors who are excited to put their own take on things. I find it so important as an ensemble member to be an individual. Mm -hmm. Yes, you're part of a team, but it's never your job to blend. It's your job to add, I think, and to bring your perspective. Yeah, there are, There's a time for unison and there's a time where it, there shouldn't be unison. And I think there's a big difference of something being, you know, in terms of choreography, speaking specifically to that, where something's very clean, people are dancing the same way, but you have different people still doing it you know, in their character, their style. You know, that's how you get those colors and those textures. And people forget that they have to contribute themselves in, in the work and a character and a perspective versus like, I'm just ensemble number five. Mm. Um, that's boring to do and it's boring to watch. Something that's very helpful is to remember that you are an individual who's part of a team and can bring perspective and texture and vibrancy. So have you had to deal with, I think, with failure and rejection, especially when you're working on a big piece and no one wants to produce it? Do you find that your creativity is what keeps you afloat or are you just a, always a happy person? I mean, I, tend, I, I go through phases of depression. Uh, a lot of people do. I'm constantly thinking about ways that I don't have to be in this industry. Mm. Uh, I think about, you know, I'd love to open up a, a cookie shop. What am I doing? Why am I hustling so hard to find the next job? I've been fired from jobs, and that you know, I, and that's such a strange feeling to feel like you're let go because you're not the right person. Mm. I was a little too unique for it. They wanted something a little more traditional, which I get. You know, I am not traditional in that sense. I've also lost jobs. You know, my amazing story of uh, meeting my partner is it was my second year in the city. My roommate booked non-equity tour of Beauty and the Beast. And she said, I hear that they're looking for conductors on some of the network tours. So I submitted and I ended up getting the job for Wizard of Oz. And uh, it was like about a week-ish before I was leaving, I didn't have any sheet music. So I called and said, can I get a score if I start studying? Because I'm taking over as conductor. And they said, oh, we'll send you something. They send me an email. The piano book, there's no vocal line, and you know, it just has the piano part, so it has lots of rests, and let's say like things like cute trumpet, whatnot, and it's like, okay, they'll send me the conductor score, I'm like, all right. Anyways, long story short, I ended up leaving the tour, it, was, uh, it just wasn't right, I, I got let go, because I, I, I didn't want to approach it the way that they wanted, and mm. I was really heartbroken, I wanted to have a tour, and uh, I was very young, and whatever reason, the first person I contacted happened to be this random guy that I had met. I was interning at Goodspeed Opera House. Uh, this guy, Andy Einhorn, happened to be interning at Goodspeed Opera House. We never met, but we knew each other's names. And I applied to grad school, as I mentioned earlier. I applied to CCM at Carnegie Mellon. CCM, it was out to me and somebody else. Happened to be this other guy, Andy Einhorn. Uh. I wrote to him, I remember, in 2009, because he was doing ordinary days. So anyways, when I got fired from Wizard of Oz, the only person I reached out to happened to be Andy. And he said, I'm about to work on a Broadway show and I need an assistant. Are you interested in meeting with me? And I said, absolutely. I had no work coming up. I just got fired from this tour. 
So I said, absolutely. I met him, and I met him and David Lau, the music director, mm. and I booked the job. So things sort of worked out for me, even though I got fired from something. It really shot my confidence. Yeah. But I ended up getting my Broadway debut and doing additional orchestrations, which led to so much. And then I met my partner. Right? Wow. Well, you have such an amazing, amazing energy. You light up a room just when, so I can see why Joanne likes you as well. You are in a successful relationship with a, another musician. Are there jealousies? Uh, are there competition? And it's also theater relationships are bizarre anyway. You guys seem to be very unique and in sync. How do you manage that? You know, we do very different things. I am probably his biggest fan. I think he's incredible. I love how he works with singers and teams and, you know, I've worked with him on Sondheim on Sondheim. So I've been in the room with him. I've seen him lead orchestras. It's important to be with somebody that you really admire. Well, does he admire you? I'm just he asking. Does okay, just making sure. And so I think that that's at the root of what allows us to cheer each other on comfortably and in a way that gets us very excited to celebrate each other's successes because it is so tough. Mm -hmm. And our approach on finding work and the type of work that we want to do is also very different. He is a conductor, music director. I'm composer, arranger. He's the interpretive, I'm the creator. So it's a nice balance. We're currently talking about doing something together. You know, we weave in and out of things when they're right to do together. And it's, it's also important for us to like have our own separate stuff. Yeah. He, in a very exciting way, has gotten a lot of success really quickly. And it's been beautiful to get to see that from where, when we started uh, dating to where he is now and it's wonderful to cheer them on and I've seen all the incredible opportunities that he's had that and how he's approached them and um, how people have truly fallen in love with his uh, his craft and musicality and see what I also see. Enough about him. Let's go back to you. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, so what of, of this amazing career that you have and I know there's a lot of things you can become what like stands out in your head as being like your highlight or one of your greatest moments? Beetlejuice is a really big one, very exciting one. Nutty Professor must be a really big highlight for me. Uh, getting to work with Martin Hamlish and Joanne, um, and there were so many dance breaks. So that felt like I was really adding a lot to the table. And Marvin Hamlish is, you know, it was just such an exciting person to get to work with. The Philharmonic concert with Andy and Audra was huge highlight. <laughs> I love people that I love. And that sounds so stupid and silly, but it's true. I mean, not, not everyone you connect with. And I know that a lot of people enjoy being around me. And I enjoy being around a lot of people, but there's, there's something when the chemistry is right that, that is exciting. And I, I, it leads to something very holy and special. You know, one of the, you were asking about, like, how do I define myself and things. And I do these awards in Charlotte called the Bloomy Awards, which are the high school. I started them in uh, Eva Noblezada, who was the lead in Miss Saigon, mm. now Hades Town, came through there and Amina Fay. So there's been a lot of incredible talent that has gone through Bloomies. And, but I, I love it because I'm working with high school kids that are so excited to be there. I'm also getting to coach and arrange and orchestrate and music direct and they sing a song that I've written. It's in May every year. It's a big highlight for me because it really incorporates so much that I love. Well, and I forgot to ask this earlier. Well, I'm doing a lot of like teaching right now and I'm really loving it. 
But I was hesitant because back when you're younger, they always say, those who can't teach. And also there's a thing from Chorus Line, they're like, why would I want to teach something that I do? But I don't think that that's necessarily the case anymore. I think that's one of those things that whoever said that shouldn't say that. I mean, tomorrow I'm taking a masterclass from Victoria Clark. I mean, the best and the best teach. You've, have you heard that? I've totally heard that. That's such a horrible saying. And it, it bothers me because I think there are a lot of teachers out there that since they were young knew that they wanted to be teachers. Mm-hmm. And it has nothing to do with talent. Some of the most talented people I know didn't want to go into the industry. It's a huge investment of time and focus. So I'm very confused on why that phrase came to be. I get it in the sense of when professionals say, if you have a backup plan, Mm -hmm. you're going to always go on your backup plan. My hunch is that that phrase was created to help people drive maybe a little bit. Mm -hmm. I don't think of that phrase very often and I don't think it's one that I found helpful. Yeah, no, me neither. And I get rid of it now because I like to teach kids. I was reading this book called Getting to Yes, which is about um, how to negotiate. You know, money is such a tricky thing. And even though I have an agent, I still hate. There are times where I have to do projects and I still have to negotiate on my own or I have to say a fee. And I read this book to figure out how to talk about money in a more comfortable way or how to say, hey, this is what I need to be successful. This is the little off topic, but it just made me think of it. But there's this great story of communication. Two kids are fighting over an orange. I need the orange, I need the orange, I need the orange. And they decide to cut the orange in half so that both can actually have the orange. It turns out one wanted the orange for the fruit to eat and threw away the peel. The other one only wanted the peel and used it for cooking. Now, if they spoke, together and said what they needed it for, they both would have turned out they would have gotten the full orange because one would have gotten the full peel and the other would have gotten the full fruit. And I think teaching is a very similar thing. It's about how you communicate. Uh, you know, you're always going to have students that are going to cross their arms and not want to hear. But I think it's students come in to gain and are ready to, to listen. I'm putting you on the spot right now. And an example of what a dance arrangement actually is. So what is a dance arranger? My mom is like, always is so confused. She's like, isn't the composer the person that writes the music? Like, why do you exist for this job? Isn't the music already written? I said, well, it is and it isn't. I said, you know, the composer writes the song, but then when the dance starts, like you could repeat the music, but it's not going to be as whimsical. You know, thinking of um, singing in the rain, you know, you see Gene Kelly sing, you know, singing in the rain and all of a sudden he dances and dances on the curb and in front of the store window and um, splashes and somebody's going to make the colors to match the curb and the splashes and you know the little flirting with the, the model in the window she goes, but still it's the composer's work like what can you claim for yourself so I always say you know it's like taking a melody let's say it's like hot cross buns or three blind mice so. right uh-huh. So let's say our story was, it's, it's um, three blind mice, and our story takes place at a elegant hotel lobby. And for whatever reason, this character has been singing three blind mice to his daughter, who is so scared to not sleep at home for the first time. Yeah. And she's there, and she's in the lobby, and he's saying, look, you know, here we see, we sing the song, right before we go to bed, we'll sing it here too. And she's in the lobby, and she's like, no, but this is a big hotel, I'm very scared. And he starts singing it, 
and all of a sudden, you know, the hotel, you know, concierge comes out and does something, and then, you know, the bellmen, bellhops come and do something, and maybe, you know, uh, the people behind the counter and the cleaning staff and the chef and somebody slides down the banister and we figure out how to use that melody and also through kids' eyes. So maybe there's like something where they actually sort of scare her that makes her laugh. Or maybe, uh, I'm, and I'm just making all this up now, maybe there's something <laughs> where it's like um, they're running around chasing each other. So she's also feeling very comfortable with the people around mm. her in the hotel. So, you know... He sings that maybe there's a little chase. You had them running down the banisters and chasing each other, and you know by the end, and they, by the end, they all have you know trays and things, three blind mice, and they're presenting her with hot cocoa and cookies, and she's laughing. You know, I want to go to this hotel. <laughs> I do too. But so that's <clears throat> my job is to figure out with the choreographer what that story is in that dance break, but using, and that's such a simple melody. But I had all these different colors and textures, and you know, there's the there's the famous way that a lot of dance ranches work, which is like you can put it into a waltz or a tango or a cha cha. But I love to figure out different ways to to use the melody and textures and time periods and characters and instruments. That is fantastic. Well, what song would you end this podcast with that uh, illustrates where you are right now? I always get such anxiety about choosing songs. I would like sharing a song with people I might have to choose Shut Up and Dance With Me by Walk the Moon I love it so much it's, it's upbeat it's energetic and it's a good story it's good groove and just every time I hear it I, I, I want to hear it again and I think that's yeah well, Shut perfect. Up and Dance With Me done thank you very much oh, don't you dare look back just keep your eyes on me I said you're holding back she said shut up and dance with me this woman my destiny, she said, ooh, ooh,
A packless dress and some beat up sneaks. My discotheque, Juliet, teenage dream. I felt in my chest as she looked at me. I knew we were bound to be together, bound to be together. She took my arm. I don't know how it happened. We took the floor and she said, Oh, don't you dare look back. Just keep your eyes on me. I said, You're in back. She said, Shut up. She said, ooh, ooh, shout out and dance with me. 